Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of the podcast. This week, we have therapist and author Michael Stratton. He's written The Little Green Book, A Guide to Breaking Up with Marijuana. Mike is neither a prohibitionist, well, he's somewhat of an advocate for cannabis. He has a lot of experience with it. And we know that about 9% of people who smoke cannabis or ingested in other ways are eventually going to develop a problem. The answer may be abstinence. It might be just stepping it back, but the answer is definitely looking at it with some intention. And Mike lays out a framework for doing that in his book, and we talk about that. We also touch on his weekly radio show, The Vinyl Side of Midnight, which comes out of Lansing Community College. They're on hiatus right now, but I look forward to hearing it when they come back on the air. In addition to this podcast, my website is at canaboomwithak.com, and my newsletter is 5 Boom Friday. Uh, you can sign up for that for news about CBD and cannabis as they relate to your health, and you'll always know who our next guest is, and there's discounts and all kinds of news about cannabis on there. Enjoy the episode. Cannabis is booming, and Cannaboom is on it. Welcome to the Cannaboom Podcast, where we interview experts on the changing story of humans, health, and hemp. From San Diego, here's your host, Tom Stacy. It's Tom. Welcome back to the Cannaboom Podcast. Today we have Michael Stratton. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing okay in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, how are you? <laughs> yeah, we're all soldiering on. Uh, the first wave is not over, but the uptick is upon us. So uh, heading into the 4th of July weekend as we record this. So hopefully uh, things are looking brighter in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Glad to have you on. You're the author of The Little Green Book, A Guide to Breaking Up with Marijuana. That came out earlier this year, I think. Yeah, it's a perfect time to release a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, people are at home and they're kind of burned out on Netflix and maybe they'll reach for a book. I know I did and I, I read it and I liked it a lot. Oh, good. Thank you. It's, that's great to hear. I've got lots of uh, stickies and highlighted pages and there's there's lots to chew on in there. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad you liked it. And uh and uh, yeah, and it's why I wrote it was obviously for an audience of people who might be interested in uh, learning more about marijuana from different angles and um, be able to, uh, uh, you know, who are, who are basically interested in inspecting their relationship with the substance. Right. Being a little more mindful of it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting because I'm a therapist. and. Uh, my perspective on the book is uh, that I think uh, I'm, I'm pro-legalization. I think uh, marijuana is very helpful in a lot of situations. Uh, I think it's the it's the substance of choice, really, for a lot of medical conditions. And about 9% of the people who use it will develop an issue with it, some kind of a problem with it. And the book is really focused on that population. So... That's that's where it goes. I would characterize it as kind of part memoir, part instruction manual. Is that accurate? That's that's pretty fair. Uh, I would uh, what what I really tried to do was accomplish uh, three different things. One was getting out some information about marijuana um, that was basically factual and based on some studies. Uh, part uh, I have been a, a big fan of memoir. And it was uh, telling a lot of my own story and my own relationship with marijuana over the years. And then uh, part of it was uh, a series of trainings that I had been doing under the auspice of SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse um, and Mental Health uh, uh, Service Administration. They had granted a 
a, a big grant to uh, an agency in our community. And I got um, some training through them and access to some of the studies and actually was a participant in a number of those studies over the course of some years to learn. Um, basically, they were looking at two main questions. And what is one was, uh, who's likely to develop an issue with marijuana? And the second question was, what tends to work with them um, in terms of people who are who express even any interest in changing that? And um, what works better than other things as far as therapy goes? And so in doing that training, at the end of it, I realized that uh, not much had been written. I mean, there'd been studies written up and some stuff that was done um, uh, for therapists specifically, but nothing that really was directed to a lay audience. And I thought, well, maybe I can kill, you know, three birds with one stone here uh, by putting it all together in a book. So when you talk about that 9% that has a problem, is that characterized as an addiction problem? Well, the this is this is what I found in my practice. So I've been a therapist and doing private practice since the late 80s. Uh, and when people who have a really strong relationship with marijuana present themselves, one of the things that uh, usually they will um, say to kind of defend the relationship is that it's not an addiction. So SAMHSA says it is. The medical definition says that it's a possibility that it is. Um, but that what that'll evoke with a lot of people is resistance. So my attempt to sidestep that disagreement or that argument is to say it's a relationship. And I think most people recognize that you have a relationship with that. You have a relationship with anything in your life. You know, we have a relationship with our computers or with our phones. You know, we can have relationships with people or places or things. Uh, and it's the same thing with cannabis. So. Uh, when I talk about it in terms of a relationship and I say, would you like to learn a way to measure your relationship? Uh, that usually doesn't evoke any resistance. So you can be an acquaintance to it. You could be a stranger. I mean, there were many years when I didn't know anything about marijuana whatsoever. I'd never even heard the word. It was such a distant stranger. I didn't even know about it. Um, then you can have heard about it, but you've never encountered it. And that was going on for a number of years. And then uh, you can become an acquaintance of it. You know, you can meet it. You know people who have done it. Uh, and then you can become a friend. You use it and you usually have one of two reactions. <laughs> Basically, I like it or I don't like it. If you like it, just like hanging out with a friend, if you hang out with somebody and you like that person, you try to seek them out again. And then how often do you seek them out? You know, do they become an inner circle friend? Are they one of your best friends? Are they absolutely your best friend? Uh, is it the person you want to, you know, is it your lover? It's who you want to go to bed with and who you want to wake up to. Um, so that's the range. That's kind of the continuum that I cover in terms of looking at um, how powerful that relationship is. And uh, like I said before, that that rarely evokes any uh, resistance or anything. People are just kind of interested in getting a picture of where they're at with it. Sure. And that kind of framing, I mean, we all have a relationship with our smartphone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, you know, if you took mine away, I, I might have a physiological reaction. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm not even proud of that, but I think you explained it pretty well. We, we have relationships with lots of things. 
It doesn't have to be a classic addiction where you do have physiological reactions. It could be purely psychological. Right, right. Yeah, and there's there's the um, that is uh, uh, an, an argument that some people who are really strong proponents of marijuana say that the only um, well, one of I mean, if you want to get into the the clinical definitions of it. Um, some of the things that define whether something's an addiction or not is uh, whether the person has any kind of withdrawal symptoms when they are not in the presence of the substance. And withdrawal from marijuana does have some withdrawal symptoms, uh, but they're subtle. And they often relate more to mood and to craving and to sleep disturbances. Uh, so they're not they're not dramatic, you know, like withdrawal from heroin, withdrawal from alcohol. Uh, those are some pretty dramatic withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal from caffeine. People will often experience headaches. Uh, withdrawal from um, marijuana is is like I said, a lot more subtle. So people even wonder, like, is well, is it is there any physical addiction to it? Um, and some people experience that and some people won't. So, you know, uh, what we've learned through the amount of research we've done is that there are a lot of variables involved and more research is called for and um, it's more complex than we had first thought. Mm -hmm. The idea of having a problem, we all know how that can show up with this substance. Um, any of us who have had experience with it during our college years and maybe after know that it can sap your will a little bit, right? Well, there's the, the some people experience that, the amotivational syndrome. Um, it's interesting because I know I have a family member, in fact, who, who uh, when, when he uses, he gets, he, he gets a lot of energy. And uh, I'll, I'll always know when he's using because he'll tell me, I was just cleaning the house. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then other people will use it and they'll just lay on the couch and you know, want to play video games or watch a movie or something like that. Um, so um, th that's one of the complicated and paradoxical effects that it has. You know, it has a different effect on different people. Different people metabolize it differently. Uh, but for people who experience the amotivational uh, issue, uh, that it's just hard to get any traction in their life. Uh, and it's one of the things that... Um, I see a lot in my office. Uh, so with teenagers, for instance, when I used to treat a lot of teenagers, their parents would uh, contact me and say, you know, my, my child's depressed. They were, um, they were doing really great. They were involved in um, sports. They were getting A's and B's. And now they're on the verge of dropping out of high school and they dropped out of all their, uh, all of their, um, the, their extracurricular activities, their friends have changed. Uh, we think they're depressed. And then when I talk to the kids, they'll, you know, and I'll ask about marijuana that they, they will identify, yeah, I started using marijuana at this point and then kind of lay out a, a track record of that's when things really started to change. So um, again, not everyone has, it's, it doesn't affect everyone that way, but uh, definitely some people it does. I know people who are very high functioning and don't have a problem. Supposedly, the that guy who ran Men's Warehouse, and you know, you remember the commercials. Uh, I guarantee it. He was known for smoking joints every day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. There are many very successful people who use it regularly and 
who who it doesn't interfere with and that's and that's one of the questions that's an individual question so it's not like this affects all people this way or all people that way specifically i'm saying how does this affect you so um what i noticed myself in terms of my own story um that there was the a motivational uh issue that um i just you know i had a plan to um after college I was going to take a year off and work in the field for a year and then go back to graduate school. And interestingly enough, right about then, I started to smoke marijuana on a daily basis. And uh, one year turned to two years, three years, four years, five years. Five years later, I finally got myself to uh, apply for graduate school. And the other the other effect that it had on me was short-term memory, uh, which was the way that it manifested itself mostly was in reading. Uh, I would read a page of a novel. I was a big reader. I loved reading, but I'd read a page in a novel and I'd get to the bottom of the page and I, I, it would hit me like, wait, what did I just read? And I'd have to go back and read it again. And it'd be like, Oh yeah, I recognize this. Okay. Yeah. I've been here before, but the, but the ability to retain that was really impaired. And I recognized that graduate school was likely to involve a lot of reading. Um, so I, so I stopped using it for a couple of years. Um, and at that point, that's, that's when, (laughs) that's when the wheels came off because I turned to alcohol instead of marijuana, which was, um, interestingly, it, it didn't affect my memory, but, um, I had the genetic lineup to become alcoholic. And so that's another story though. I'm sure I'm not the first person to kind of speculate. Is there a sort of almost a biological need to change your state? We see cats will play with catnip. I, I don't know how many mammals try to get high, but especially in, in times like these when there is a wall of stress almost every day, and how do people cope with that? On the spectrum, there's an argument for harm reduction. Sometimes cannabis might be less destructive than alcohol. I'll, I'll let you take the first part of that. You know, What about the sort of the need to change your state as a coping mechanism? Well, I, I think... Uh, I. Yeah, that's a great question, and there there are two parts of it. And I want to address both parts. I do think that this is in human nature, and it might be in the nature of uh, maybe all creation. You know, the attempt to evolve, uh, the 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 desire to change, the desire to uh, be different in some way. In fact, I think what we are facing right now. You mentioned here we are. It's uh, just prior to the 4th of July weekend in 2020, which I think is a year that we'll all remember for a long time. I think that's part of what's going on. I think, I think, I think our country is going through a, 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 the growing pains of developing a new consciousness. And whether that consciousness is about um, how we treat each other, are we really and truly united? How are we treating people who are quote unquote other um, I think I think all of that ties into the idea of consciousness and how do we change that? And we've certainly used substances over the over the over many years, and it's really interesting to see what's being done now um, in the field of psychedelics, uh, um, LSD, mushrooms, ketamine, um, different people using it to um, do things that basically kind of expand their consciousness. Uh, I was really interested in that myself back when I was using a lot. Um, 
and the the idea of harm reduction that you bring up, Tom, is important as well. And I'm a I'm a believer in that. So I think in days past, when someone worked in the substance use field, if someone came to them and they said, uh, um, you know, for instance, uh, I'm using marijuana or I'm using whatever substance and I don't want to give it up. Uh, they would often be uh, either told, well, you're you're in denial and we're going to just break down your denial, or uh, they would be refused treatment and say, you're not ready to change, come back when you're ready to change. And I always thought that was really destructive uh, and not helpful. Um, I, I'm more along the lines of both harm reduction and also let's let's investigate um, your relationship with the substance. And, and usually when we do that, or when I do that, I start with what do you like best about it? You know, what does this do for you? And um, when a person feels that they're okay with talking about that, they're also okay with talking about, okay, is there a downside? Is there something you don't like about it? And then they'll usually express, yeah, in fact, I don't like, I don't like this, you know, and, um, um, then, then you have some, you know, you have a whole big range of area to work in. Mm-hmm. That was a big question. Yeah. Kind of right down the strike zone there on a, <laughs> a fastball, I guess. No, those are big thoughts. I mean, you know, you talk about evolution and where we are right now and uh, society tries to kind of find its footing. There is a change going on and, and it is both kind of personal and and collective. Um, We're going through some massive changes. And do substances help or hurt that? I mean, alcohol is a social lubricant until you're drowning in it. And then then it's not positive anymore. Right. Yeah, the the answer is both. Mm -hmm. Both. And it it helps and it hurts. I mean, there's a there's a limit to uh, the solution that a lot of medications have to offer. You know, they they thought the antidepressants were kind of a miracle drug when they first came out. Um, different, uh, some of the benzos, you know, like uh, uh, Valium or Xanax, you know, they, they were thought of as like, oh my gosh, this is really helpful. It'll really take the edge off of any anxiety you have. And then they found later like, oh my God, these are really addictive, <laughs> really hard to get off of. And um, so, you know, It's just interesting how much um, really and for for all the um, for all the things that I don't like about big pharma, one thing that big pharma has done is it has introduced an awful lot of uh, research, Um, just like. Uh, you know, the space program, a lot of things came out of the space program that were kind of side effects of what they were really working on. I think the same thing is true for big pharma. We understand the brain a lot better than we used to. And um, and how that relates to cannabis is really interesting. And and once again, you know, cannabis will interact with different people's brains in different ways and different strains react in different ways, too. I think all this is really interesting stuff that we're going through right now. I mean, I've talked to a lot of chemists and doctors and Raphael Meshulam in Israel in the early 60s was the first to kind of put his finger on the chemistry of it. And then we discovered we have an endocannabinoid system and we have receptors throughout our bodies for all these different cannabinoids. And there are benefits where people take CBD and that's derived from cannabis, but it's not going to get you high. There's lots to think about there. 
But back to the need or the craving for substances, I think a lot of us think we're in control of it, but then one day you wake up and say, hey, maybe I'm not in control of it. Well, and that's, that's yeah, it's interesting because it's very subtle uh, and it tends to be incremental. Uh, I, I mean, marijuana was something that I really loved in my life. I, what it, what it did for me when I first started to use it, uh, it, it enhanced everything. Um, colors were brighter, music sounded better, food tasted better, uh, textures felt better. Um, you know, just, just everything just seemed to be better with it. And, um, I was able to, understand abstract jazz you know it really enhanced my ability to listen to jazz to um i I wrote a a paper at the end of college on existential psychology that i don't think i would have been able to understand if i hadn't been smoking some pot at that time um i was reading the beat poets i I mean just it, it enhanced so many things over the course of some years very subtly very incrementally uh, I came to rely on it more and more, and it became more of a, a problem solver um, in the sense of like I was using it to reduce my stress. Uh, I was working at the time on a in a psych hospital uh, inpatient unit, and it was it was a pretty stressful job. And um, uh, again, incrementally, I got to the point where, without realizing it, I'd become dependent on it. I, uh, if I was on the verge of running out, I'd feel panicked about it and make sure that I was going to get some more. And then, as I described <clears throat> before, you know, it got to the point where it was really starting to affect my motivation, affecting my functioning in terms of being able to read. Um, and uh, I, you know, I was really dependent on it. Um, the, the, the control, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the loss of control is one of the key things that we look at in terms of what is my relationship with a substance like. So is it predictable? Uh, so one of the things that I would do, I would realize like, oh, man, I'm, I'm just smoking way too much. I'm going to buy some really good stuff. I, I bought like the best ounce of weed I ever bought in my life. This was back in the days when people bought it by the ounce. <laughs> you didn't have to mortgage anything to buy right. it. That's pretty expensive <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, I think I paid at the time $50, which was a lot for a bag of weed. And um, back then, and and, uh, and I broke it up into little, little baggies and put them in the freezer and thinking, you know, okay, now here's the date that I'll open this one. Here's the date I'll open this one. Here's the date I'll open this one. Thinking, you know, if I do that, then I can control how much I'm using. It's just going to be for special events, special times, just here and there on the weekend. I had a friend who would, he said he went through an ounce of weed a year. And I always thought that sounds great. That sounds like the way to do it. Um, Within two weeks, it was all gone. It was all gone. I I broke right through one one deadline after another, you know, just breaking through and just open up the next bag and open up the next bag. Now, so that showed that my using was becoming compulsive. It was not predictable. I was experiencing that loss of control. I was smoking more often than I thought I wanted to, and more than I wanted than I thought I wanted to. Um, those are all kind of red flags, you know, when you find yourself like. Uh, feeling that compulsive pull to do it and that kind of panicky feeling when you don't have it available to you. 
Right. We all strive to <laughs> for moderation, maybe. Um, but when it's not there, then that, like you said, is a red flag, possibly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 some people are totally. And again, <laughs> again, some people are totally okay with that. You know, I know some people who say, "Yeah, absolutely, I'll freak out if I don't have it," and I'm good with that. And and you know, if their life is working for them, who's to argue with that? Um, this is for people who might be experiencing that and recognizing that in some way, uh, their use might be getting in their way. Right. Like you recounted from your own history, if you have a plan to do something and five years later, you're going, why did I do that? That's kind of an indicator that maybe you have an issue. Mm -hmm. Potentially. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and people's, I mean, it, it does, people's uh, goals in life change. Um, there's a saying in recovery world. <laughs> the saying is that most people uh, have a goal and they'll change their behavior to meet their goal. When you develop an issue with a substance, you change your goals to match your behavior. So it's kind of like flips around. Um, and that, to, to, to a large extent, that seems to be true. Back to the times that we're in, do you see an uptick in people kind of raising their hand and saying, I might have an issue here? I, I do. Uh, I think that um, the use of marijuana, and again, I'm pro-legalization. It is legal in Michigan now. A lot more people are using it. Uh, it's it's rare for me to go out and not smell it someplace, you know, out in public. Um, uh, there's stores that are selling it. Um, there's beers that are infused with it now. I mean, it, it's it's kind of all over the place. It's uh, People are using edibles, all, all kinds of ways that it's being used now. Um, the uh, percentage of people that use it is probably going to go up. I, and generally, I think that's kind of a good thing as opposed to alcohol. I think it's a safer substance than alcohol is. Um, but conversely, I think... Um, if it's that 9% and the overall number is larger, uh, the number of people who are likely to develop an issue with it is also going to be larger. Mm -hmm. But again, you're, you are in favor of legalization. You're not a prohibitionist. So you see it as um, useful for people, but if they have a problem and they may have a problem, yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, this is such a, a, a binary time you know, that you're either for this or you're against this. Um, and taking the middle path with this has been really interesting to me. One of the ways that I started doing this after I was, after I was doing the training, I did a teleseminar with a group of people and uh, developed an email list and did all of that kind of stuff. And uh, what I found was that there were a percentage of the people that could, would get really upset with me when I said I was even though I was a substance use therapist, that was a, that's about a third of what I work with in my profession. Uh, even when I said that, um, they would be outraged that I would be, you know, how, how could you be for this? You know, marijuana was the gateway drug for my son and they developed heroin and it ruined their life. And how could you be for the legalization of something that's going to lead to that? Um, and then on the opposite side was how dare you suggest anything is wrong with this this is a miracle drug. It does everything for everybody. There's no problems with it whatsoever. Everyone should be using it. And, and I, you know, the, the idea of like, yeah, there's something to be said on both sides of this. And there's a middle path that's kind of a, a, a Buddhist perspective. 
um, that idea that there's a middle path, that there's some truth on both sides, and let's try to find something in the middle that really works for people. Um, uh, and that, you know, I, you just see that all over the place. You see that politically, um, you know, we're so, so divided right now. Uh, and, um, I, I don't know. I just think it's a, it's an interesting thing that's happened to our culture. And I, and again, I think that there'll be a big, uh, what the French call the rapprochement, you know, at some point we will come together again in the middle, um, to a great extent. I just, I just think that that's true. Yeah, you're on a tightrope there for sure. And then I possibly a, a complicating factor to this is the the 100-year prohibition where gee, if you go back to the 1900s there were tinctures available and it was used as a folk remedy for migraines or whatever people had. We had a relationship with cannabis and then there was the whole lie that started in 1937 that it's the evil weed and the devil's lettuce. There's so much misinformation. Maybe that accounts for some of this binary sort of nature of how you see it. And the other piece of that, Tom, is that, I mean, it had a racial component. The The outline of it definitely had a racial component. When you see the war on drugs, that was a way to uh, really do um, harm to the black culture and to uh, Hispanic culture. It was a, it was a quick way to arrest a, a lot of people. Um, and very few people in the white culture were using it. And then when, when you saw white kids beginning to use marijuana, um, that's when the war on drugs really cranked up, you know, and, and, uh, all of that, you know, and the dare program and all those kinds of things that were very, um, ineffective and destructive, you know? So, um, that's, that's another reason why I'm really for the legalization of it, because it was, it was just a subterfuge to, um, corral people of color and put them in jail. You're one of the few people taking a clear-eyed look at it. I mean, the pendulum swings to the other side where people present cannabis as a panacea for whatever ails you. <laughs> and it's it's not that either. In terms of harm reduction and stress relief, it has applications and it's not the devil's weed. And, and part of it, I mean, in terms of the other side of it, you know, that it is harmless and that um, it doesn't cause anyone any problems and you can't become addicted to it. That's the other side of the mythology, um, that you can use it too much. You can use it too often. You can develop a tolerance to the point that um, you can you can actually develop some physical ailments. Uh, the, one, of the, one of the things that people have been seeing in the last uh, few years is this um, syndrome, you know, people, uh, doctors in particular, noticing this in emergency rooms of people showing up and having these horrible stomach cramps and vomiting. And um, quite often that is linked to really heavy chronic marijuana use. I'm talking to someone right now who's been having that going on and they do a lot of, uh, they, they use dabs on a regular basis. Um, so they have a very high THC content and, um, when I say, you know, if does it does a hot shower seem to help it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it does, absolutely. So, I mean, this is a syndrome that we're starting to see um, that has been around for a few years. And unfortunately, at this point, I mean, it looks like the um, the best cure for that is abstinence. Um, that when people start to use it again, they develop that. It's what what is it called? The cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. I always mispronounce that, but 
I have no experience with dabbing, but it seems to me it's that mindset of, okay, if, if a couple of bong hits are good, this is going to be even better. You're building a tolerance up and you begin to overwhelm your system, all your your whole endocannabinoid system and, and your brain maybe with, wow, just huge amounts. I mean, you're basically freebasing, right? There's a torch involved in, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know that the body was meant to withstand that, right. but. Yeah, the butane infused hashish oil, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I was working with someone else that was doing that, was doing that exclusively, and he was having those symptoms. And he he also was somebody who um, got to the point where it was really interfering with his functioning. He'd lost a relationship over it. Um, and he uh, he stopped dabbing and he started to just smoke it, you know, just smoke the occasional joint in the evening. And um, he got he got back on track. He started picking up the business that he was uh, doing before and uh, ended up, you know, saying that he was a lot happier using it that way. So there's there's an example of harm reduction. Um, another another example of harm reduction to get back to it is there was one guy I was treating who was really um, uh, really lost with alcohol. He had a really um, a bad chronic relationship with alcohol and he was consistently getting arrested for it and driving under the influence and just, you know, all kinds of bad things were happening. Um, and he smokes regularly. He smokes on a daily basis, but he doesn't drink when he smokes. And um, I think that's another one of those harm reduction things, you know? Um, so, um, I, you know, that looks like progress to me. Yeah. That's part of your approach when you're counseling patients is it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. You can throttle back maybe and have a better life. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. And 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 some of it is even even the willingness to um experiment with it, you know, to experiment. What if what if you tried doing this as opposed to that? Would you be open to trying that as an experiment? Um <clears throat> because some people even the the uh the resistance of trying that experiment says something about the the strength of the relationship so um and i don't know to what extent we want to get into this but i said before you know there was i was involved in that study and the and two of the main things that we found out in that study uh back 2004 to 2007 is when this study took place um one thing that we found out is that people who were likely to develop a problem with it um, started when they were 15 years old or younger, uh, that that had such a strong effect on their brain development uh, that it kind of um, circumvented the brain development that tied long-term consequences to current behavior. So when that got interfered with, they were more likely to develop a dependency on substances. Um, and that that didn't just mean marijuana. They were also like more likely to go on to other substances as well. That was one thing we learned. The other thing that we learned was that what tends to work better in terms of approaches is something called motivational interviewing. And that's where you um, do talk about both sides of the ambivalence, you know, what you like about it and what you don't like about it. It's non-judgmental. It's respectful. It's it's uh, believing that people know in their hearts, you know, what's best and what's in their best interest, that they're going to come to those decisions. How do I know <laughs> what's in your best interest? But let's have a conversation about it. And my experience in working in those methodologies is that when you have um, 
open, honest conversations about it, people tend to make better choices for themselves, consistently better choices over time. Um, so those are the those are the main things that we learned about it. Yeah, it seems to me sometimes your job is holding a mirror up to somebody who maybe doesn't want to look in that mirror. When you talked earlier about everything sounded better, tasted better, you know, there's the old line about the, the palace of excess leads to wisdom or something. I mean, you can't know what's enough until you've had too much. <laughs> um, you know, and in, when you're in that mindset, you're kind of questing, you're looking for answers. But then if you bump up to the answer is you're fucked up, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess that's wisdom, right? <laughs> well, well <laughs> it's uh, one, one of the, I think it was the bass player for the Grateful Dead, uh, who used to say too much is just enough. That, <laughs> that was always, <laughs> that was our, uh, the phrase that we used back in, back when I was using uh, too much is just enough. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you, if you, if you feel like the relationship has gotten stale again, you know, um, you, and, and, and one of the pathways out of that is to understand what does this do for me? So the idea of expanding your consciousness has always been interesting to me. The idea of, um, living the life of an aesthetic, you know, of appreciating beauty, of appreciating, um, tastes and sights and sounds. Um, those are areas that I've really let myself go as deep as I possibly can. And uh, they have become, well, you know, when you started out talking about my radio show, I, I really doubt that I would be doing a radio show if I was still using marijuana. I would dream about doing it. I would think it would be a great idea. I'm not sure that I would have actually gotten it together to make the pitch to the studio and to have been accepted and all that kind of stuff. And as a result, I mean, I, I swim in an ocean of music. I, I, I have so much music at my fingertips now. Actually, everybody does. <laughs> but um, uh, but you, you need to find a way to replace what the substance did for you. Uh, and... Um, if you don't find that, you'll return to the substance, you know, if, if, if that's the direction you want to go in, if that makes sense. You've managed to do a radio show for 23 years. In the age of Spotify, people are still listening to you. So obviously, you got a lot of value out of that and you're delivering value to it rather than holding yourself back. The the idea of surprise, I think, is big for a lot of people of just like, oh, I didn't know. So it's a jazz radio show, but I love to... I love to throw curveballs at people. So I'll play, I'll play some soul music. I'll play a blues. I'll play a, I, I play Patsy Cline on my show. I, I play avant-garde stuff. Um, Jimi Hendrix. I, I just, um, I think, I think people want their minds expanded. I, I know when they tune into my show, they're going to hear something um, that will make their ears prick up and it'll be like, Oh, wow. That sounds like my kind of radio station. Um, <laughs> I, I love the, yeah, the eclectic mix. You want variety. You want a surprise. You're not broadcasting right now, but let's get your call numbers or whatever. Is it available on the internet? It 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 is available on the internet. And the station right now, what they're doing is they're broadcasting. So they're still playing a stream. It's not my show. It's not anybody's show because it's, it's mainly people 
who do the shows there are volunteers and it's a very eclectic station to begin with so they have a they have a folk show they have a heavy metal show they have a they have some blues shows they've got a the show that's preceding mine is a reggae show uh, they got a Latino show. Um, so uh, my show is on Sunday nights from nine to midnight. Every Sunday night, that's Eastern Daylight Time, nine to midnight. And then it gets replayed on Friday nights from seven to nine p.m. I'm really hoping within the next couple of months that we'll be back on the air. But with the pandemic, we just don't know. And with the college being shut down, I mean the whole the whole thing is just locked down. And we can't we can't access it, you know. So um, hopefully, it someday we'll be back in there, and um, and I'll be able to do that again. But I miss that. I do miss that. At first, it was kind of a relief because I've done it for twenty three years, and it's like, oh, I got my Sunday nights free. This is great. But now I miss it. So I can get in in the show notes. How can people find that if they want to listen to it? LCC Radio. Uh, they can go to lccradio.org, and they will be able to stream it. Um, and currently we are not, I mean, one of the demands that I've, that I've heard from people is that currently they are, we are not, um, we're not podcasting, uh, the shows are not, uh, they're not being re, re, you know, kept for, you know, some stations you can go back and listen to individual shows. I know that's something that the station manager wants to do for us, but they haven't pulled it together yet to do that. Okay. We'll get that in the show notes. So you're in my old stomping grounds. I went to Michigan State. I was there. Uh, so, yeah, I haven't been back. I wish I could get back. When were you at Michigan State? Uh, 78 to 82. 78 to 82. Okay. Yeah. Uh, those years I, I was just done with my undergrad, and I came back to Lansing. I was working on the psych unit those years and uh, and hearing a lot of good music at MSU, a lot of good uh, – uh, there was a lot of great jazz that was at uh, the Erickson Kiva and uh, – some some good uh, country stuff too. Doc Watson and um, Norman Blake and uh, different different folks like that. What's your advice for somebody who's listened to this and is thinking, you know, maybe I I do need to take a look at my my marijuana consumption. What what are some first steps they could take? Oh, oh God, you just set me up. This is like playing <laughs> volleyball with someone. I oh here here comes the slam dunk. So I I would suggest purchasing my book, <laughs> uh, the Little Green Book. Uh, by Michael Stratton, uh, you can you can uh, uh, purchase that either. You know, you can get an ebook version of that, or you can get the hardcover. It is a little green book too. It's it's uh, it's less than two hundred page, pages altogether. It's a hundred and I'm just looking it up, one hundred sixty five pages. So um, you can read it actually, like in an afternoon or just a couple of days or so. And uh, there's a it's packed full of information. Uh, people who you know, um, and I and I put the information up front in terms of taking that test, that self test of trying to identify, you know, what's the strength of my relationship with cannabis. Um, so they can they can look at that. They can also look at my website, which is www.mikestratton.com. I've got uh, actually an unedited first chapter of this book that I publish for free on that website. They can take a look at it and see if that's something that's interesting to them or not. And, um, and then there's uh, basically the book gives you a step-by-step -step guide that if you decide to stop, you know, different ways to do that, different things that are helpful, uh, ways to work with your own resistance. Cause if you want to change something, you know, if, 
I'll tell you what, if I decided like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to start a diet, you know what I'm likely to eat tonight is a pizza, you know? <laughs> um, you know, if I, I mean, it's, it's human nature that when you try to make a change, you automatically begin to resist it. Uh, Alan Watts said, um, when you float in the water, when you try to float, you sink, when you try to sink, you float. Uh, it, it's, it's, one of those weird things about change is that it's it evokes change evokes resistance and that just seems to be part of what happens so the book outlines how to work with your own resistance and different pathways to take you know to do the kinds of things we were talking about of how to substitute um what what did the substance do for you what does cannabis do for you and how to start to address that it helps you go go to sleep how do i learn how to relax it helps you um, see brilliant colors. How do I develop um, that visual sense for myself without it? You know, it's, it, do, it doesn't matter what it was that it does for you. You need to find a new pathway if that's the direction you want to go to. Well, and that seems a key concept is when we talk about a binary sort of perspective, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be black or white. And you can bring some compassion to yourself and understand that you're going to have some resistance, but step towards it and understand that <laughs> there's something in you that's going to fight it for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that, that's very true. And um, there's usually different parts that people have. I have a lot of, um, I guess the word is humility, uh, to stand in the presence of someone who is in the process of change, because I do get how hard that is. And, um, and having been through that process myself, I understand the, I guess, sacrifices that are involved in that, uh, the giving up, the letting go, and uh, initially doing so out of a faith that something better is, is, is around the corner. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a believer in that. I'm a believer in that. But I also understand how hard it is. And not everyone can do it. Not everyone needs to do it. Um, but it's worth the conversation with yourself to uh, to consider it. Absolutely. Mike, is there anything um, we haven't covered that we should? Oh, well, let's see. Well, I mean, we could talk music before. <laughs> no, this is, Tom, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you giving the book uh, some time and, and uh, talking to me about it. And, uh, and uh, I, I hope it, I, I hope it does find an audience and um, yeah, I'm just grateful. Thanks. You bet. You mentioned your website. Are you on Twitter or Facebook? Should we look for you there? Yeah, look for me on Facebook. I, I uh, you know, Mike Stratton on Facebook in in East Lansing, Michigan. Yeah, I'm also uh, my my TV or my TV show, my radio show has a has its own Facebook page, The Vinyl Side of Midnight. I've got a professional page for the Little Green Book. I've got a professional page for my um, practice, which is Mike Stratton, ACSW. Um, but the little green book, Michael Stratton, uh, if you look that up on Amazon, you'll be able to find copies of it available. All right. Vinyl side of midnight. I love that. Yeah. 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 You're putting the needle down on real vinyl. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm doing real vinyl. Uh, the irony is when I first started doing the radio show, 
they had a turntable in the studio and then they moved the studio to a new modern studio, which doesn't have a turntable. <laughs> so I've had, here's the irony. I've had to burn a lot of my LPs to CD to be able to play them. <laughs> so, but the CD side of Midnight <laughs> doesn't have that same ring. Yeah. Well, that's great. You know, I know like Neil Young was going to the wall for vinyl uh, for a while. Um, I've got a big turntable upstairs, a big old set of speakers um, that my wife got from a friend in a Macintosh receiver. And we love to light that thing up. It can rock the house. <laughs> great. That's great. That's, uh, yep, that's that's how we did it back in the day. Thank you for taking the time to talk about your book. I know our readers will be interested and uh, they they know where to find you. Fantastic. You, you're doing a great job, Tom. This is, a, this is a wonderful podcast you put together. I've listened to a few episodes and it's really cool. Oh, thanks, Mike. You've been listening to the Cannaboom Podcast with host Tom Stacy. If you like the show and want to know more, please check us out at Cannaboom with a K.com. And please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next week.